This is part one of a three-part podcast. Hi, this is Mark. There are a lot of reasons to get angry these days, but I prefer to focus on the positive things that we each can do to make this world a better place. The book Building a Better World in Your Backyard, instead of being angry at bad guys, is a great resource for just that. Instead of throwing my arms up in frustration at governments or big corporations, there's a list of ideas that we each can tackle to affect change. Information about this book and other resources can be found at permies.com. Ta-da! A new podcast! <laughs> Today we're going to talk about permaculture technologies stuff, which we're also calling low-tech stuff. And uh, uh, we're going to try to recap the stuff that we talked about or the stuff that we did at the PTJ last year. And we might mention a little bit about the PTJ that's going to go on this year. And as of a couple of weeks ago, it has been decided that we're going to make a movie Um so, uh, Michael Otten recorded a bunch of the stuff going on at the Permaculture Technology Jamboree last year. And so we're mashing that into a, a movie and then doing a Kickstarter and the whole thing. And on top of all of that, I've got all these ideas in my head about how we can develop a more symbiotic relationship between uh, the, the permaculture technology jamboree, the movies, and Kickstarters, and things of that nature. So I'm hoping that for this upcoming event that we'll be able to entice even more instructors, pay them more, and uh, set the uh, the price to attend to be less, uh, and so have a bigger, bolder, richer event, and on top of all of that, to make it so that the uh, uh, the people that attend can take video, and we've already announced a thing where um, for every minute of video that we use in a new movie, even further beyond, like a year down the road, that uh, they'll get monies and other goodies for that. And so uh, more about that and a future podcast. But for now... We have several of the instructors jumping in in this podcast uh, that were here last year, and I'm looking through the list, and I'm thinking all of them are going to be here next year except for Alan. So Alan, of course, will be here to teach the permaculture design course, and last year after the PDC, he stuck around to work on projects for an extra week, but uh, uh, my understanding is, is that he will not be able to do that this year. So. We have Alan Booker, uh, Chris McClellan, also known as Uncle Mud, uh, uh, Opalyn Rose, uh, who's on the permies.com staff, and Samantha Lewis, who's also on the permies.com staff, and Bo Davidson, uh, who's also on the permies.com staff. So, uh, Alan was in charge of the Spring Terrace, but he got very involved with the Rocket Kiln Project. Uncle Mud was very involved in the Rocket Kiln Project, as well as the Rocket Hot Tub Project, and I'm the Rocket J2 Project, and I'm sure uh, several other things. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment and we'll get the full list. Uh, and uh, Opalin did the uh, the 
bicycle parts converted into a spinning wheel. And she also did the Hoogle culture bit and a bunch of stuff with the apothecary. Uh, Samantha did uh, a lot of animal system stuff. We ended up uh, uh, shearing a sheep and also uh, sealing a pond with animals. Uh, who have I left out? Oh, Bo. Bo did the, uh, the mycelium door and, uh, so mycelium insulated door and the Prenicky hinges. So, um, uh, we'll get into all the details with every person here in a moment, but Alan has to run away here first. And so we're gonna, we're gonna jump in on Alan's stuff first. Alan, where do you want to begin? Kiln or Spring Terrace? Well, let's just go ahead and start on with the spring terrace. Okay. What is a spring terrace? I got a whole podcast about spring terraces with Zach Weiss, but you came here and you actually dug in the ground and things of that nature. So just a quick recap of what is a spring terrace. Well, it's, I mean, I guess if you've never seen the concept before, it's got a spring part and a, and a terrace part. So let's talk about the spring first. I mean, a spring is what we're trying to do with, with installing a spring terrace is basically to create an artificial spring. Um, not, not, not spring boing boing, but spring drip drip. Right. So when you get a spring line in a landscape, what's happening is you're getting water that's infiltrating into the ground. It's going down and it's, the most common way that we get a spring line is that it hits a impermeable layer or a mostly impermeable layer so that the water can't easily keep on going straight down, you know. And so some of it decides to creep down the, sur- the, the subsurface, um, um, place where you get l- more permeable dirt hitting less permeable dirt. And so some of it tries to get down into the impermeable, but a lot of it will run downhill um, along, if there's any kind of uh, slope to that impermeable surface, it will slowly trickle downhill in between the open air spaces between the more permeable soil on top. And it kind of runs downhill. So you can kind of think of it as, uh, another subterranean feature, just like the surface of the earth has a, uh, you know, topography to it, uh, as it, you know, moves up and down across the landscape, the, oftentimes these subsurface, um, strata of, say, impermeable soils also have that. So they might also have a slope to them so that when that water hits, instead of just pulling up there and kind of staying, it, kind of works its way downhill. And if you can find a place, well, a natural spring will happen where that water comes downhill to a place where that um, impermeable layer either gets really close to the surface or intercepts the surface, at which point that water now seeps back out onto the surface. And that's one of the common ways that a spring line actually will happen high in a high landscape where you've got hills and, and so forth. Um, and, and then all of a sudden you start coming down the hill a ways and you find a natural spring on the side of that hill. It's um, you've had enough water go down and hit 
a semi-permeable or impermeable layer and come down and then work its way out back out to, you know, the back out to the air. And then you get a spring coming out. And, um, okay. So sometimes though, you get something that's close to that, but the water never quite makes it back to the surface. And if you can find that situation, then there's a possibility of digging down and intercepting that water as it is creeping its way downhill underground and possibly harvesting that. And that's basically what we're trying to do with the spring terrace is to find a situation where the, where the underground is just right and underground situation is just right. And then uh, go in and intercept that water before it can run off any further downhill and bring it out where we can use it. So I'm going to try to take everything you just said and re-say it in a slightly different way and, I'm, and hopefully a very quick, short way, which, and it'll be a flawed way. It won't be, it won't be entirely accurate, but it will be a, an example. And that is you have a hill and on top of, on this hill, the hill is, the bones of the hill is bedrock. And so there is a bedrock hill that has, I'm going to make something up. I'm going to say it has four feet of gravel and sand on top of that bedrock. And so, uh, there is water sitting in the humus layer, uh, on top of that sand and gravel that is ever so slowly leaking down and landing on the bedrock in a, in a place that we cannot see and is flowing down the bedrock where we cannot see. So, uh, what we can do is, uh, dig into the hillside someplace kind of low, not entirely low, but kind of low. And then we'd be able to see that water flowing by. Not a lot, but a little. And a little is a lot. Because if it's flowing down right here where we happen to dig, chances are it's flowing down over there and over there and over there and over there. And then we could try to come up with a way to get all those little bits of water to come together in one spot. And now we might have a rather significant amount of water, hundreds of gallons per day. Okay. There is a simplified version, a simplified example that may or may not ever actually exist in the real world. But what I yeah. have just described is also a spring so, terrace. And so what you're saying, in your example, the bedrock is the impermeable layer or semi-permeable layer. Sometimes bedrock will have little fissures in it that some water can go down, right? So yes. it's our impermeable layer. And then in your example, the sandy, uh, gravelly soil is our permeable layer. Mm-hmm. And um, when it rains, for example, some of that rain may run down the surface, right, of the of that. Uh, you may have some, if you've got uh, ground, if you've got any good, um, you know, plant cover, 
then you might have, as you said, some humus or some organic matter up at the very top of that. And if you get a rain, some of that's going to get grabbed onto by that organic matter and held there for a while. Part of it may run off downhill and part of it may go through and trickle down through that sandy, gravelly layer until it hits the bedrock. And then it will, part of that will then start to flow downhill on the surface of that bedrock, albeit slowly because, of course, it's having to work its way through the interstitial spaces between the sand and gravelly particles. And as it works its way down, um, if we can find a place where that bedrock is, you know, a convenient depth, then we might be able to dig a trench um, laterally across the breadth of the hill for a little ways. Because, as you were saying, hopefully in every little place, if we were to dig down and find the bedrock, then you might see a little water or, you know, trying to trickle past you. So if we were then go across basically what you can think of as almost a contour line going across the hill, uh, almost all at the same elevation, we might find a bunch of those spots. And when we had found all of that, we could say, oh, maybe what we can do here is we can put in a pipe a perforated pipe that can catch that water and put some gravel around it and then wrap that gravel in some filter fabric or geotextile fabric so that when we backfill the sand and uh, on top of it, it that, that the gravel st- you know doesn't get filled in by all that sand so that it becomes a really low resistance place that the water can go as it comes trickling down. So if the water comes trickling down and finds that gravel, it's like, oh, I like to flow here, and it goes in, and by doing that, we can direct it into that pipe. Now, if we took that pipe and tilted it ever so slightly so that one end of it was downhill from the other end, then any water that got into that pipe, once it got there, would run you know, laterally across the hill, but slightly downhill to one of the ends of the pipe where we could take a takeout pipe and collect all the water. You know, you might have a hundred or 200 feet of pipe across, you know, running laterally across the hill, trying to collect all of that water. And as that water seeps in across the entire length of that pipe, it runs slightly downhill. Um, to one end, and then you have a takeout pipe where you can get that water out of there. And now, basically, the reason why we even bother with any of this is that you can be in some very dry country and have no water on your land, no running water, no springs, no creeks, nothing. But if you do this, you could effectively... Create a spring out of nothingness. And so now you have water. Even more. Sepp Holzer did it. Yes. 
So it's it's not just and then on top of that, I mean, not only does it make sense logically, I know that Sepp Holzer did it. And how much water does Sepp Holzer have from his? If I remember the stories, I haven't seen it in live, but if I remember the story, it was about 400 gallons a day he was getting um, out of it once the system kind of stabilized. Yeah. I'm, my understanding is is that it started off a little weak, but with passing years, it got better and better and better. Yes. Yeah. I think the other thing we should mention, of course, is the terrace part. And um, people are, what, what's the terrace part of the spring terrace? And well, remember I said that part of the that water could go just running off down the hill on the surface of the 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 uh, the, the sandy layer, right? You could you could get a lot of if it, especially if it was pretty steep, you could get a lot of that water just running off instead of infiltrating. And so, if you have a fairly steep surface, one of the things you could do is you could build some sort of little earthwork that would encourage the water instead of just running off to collect and then soak in. And so on certain level of um, steepness, then the most effective way of doing that is to put in a terrace. Uh, and then as the water runs downhill, it comes to a terrace. It's kind of back sloped into the hill a little bit. So all of the water that hits the terrace has a tendency to run kind of backwards towards the back of the terrace where it collects and soaks in. And any water that hits the steep part just uphill of the terrace tends to run down, also collect there at the back of that terrace, and it allows it for to, to soak in. So what we're doing is by putting in these maybe a few terraces uphill from our spring, we increase the percentage of precipitation harvest that we get and get more of that precipitation down into the ground where it will hopefully eventually work its way down to our spring system. I think, I think one of the things that is important here is to say, I, I want to comment on the terrace bit just a little bit, but before that, I want to say a moment ago, I was saying that Sepp Holzer's spring terrace generated more water as the years passed, and the last I heard, which sounds like the last you heard, also 400 gallons per day, 400 gallons of water per day. And um, I believe it's because as the organic matter in the soil is improved in his watershed above his spring terrace, that that water finds its way into it. And I And I think that the water that you end up with, I mean, I, I kind of want to ignore the water that comes on a rainy day. The water I, I want to hear about the 400 gallons a day is when it's dry, like it hasn't rained in six weeks, but we're still getting 400 gallons a day. To me, that's the important water. So, yeah, you, the, the water that's coming out when it's been hasn't rained for a long time is coming from several places. One is that we know that for every acre, this is this is the USDA's official numbers. They say that if you increase the organic matter in the O horizon of soil by one percent, that that increases the water retention capacity by twenty five thousand gallons per acre. That's the that's the, what the U.S. government acknowledges. 
So if you can increase the organic matter in an acre of topsoil, then you've just been able to sponge up an extra 100,000 gallons of water when you do have rain. Okay. Number two is, as we said, the water that gets down even past that into the lower, you know, subsoils, it moves kind of slowly because it has to work its way slowly between these interstitial spaces. So it doesn't just come flowing out all very quickly. It acts like a water capacitor itself. So between those two primary things, they hold a lot of water and release it slowly. Then the third thing I would say is the re, so your question is like, well, okay, then why does, why did it get better over time? Well, yes, I think probably Paul, you're right that as, as there was interventions in the landscape uphill that you increased the organic matter and therefore increased the water holding capacity of the organic matter up the hill. And then probably the second thing that happens is that when you create an area of low hydrological pressure, water likes to go in that direction. So at the very beginning, we've just changed the subterranean landscape by putting in this pipe where water has an easy way out, right? And so, ooh, some of the water is like, ooh, that's a good way to go. And as it does, it creates little... um Pipes. Little seats that <laughs> yeah. get pushed and it's like, and, and over time, the flow of water slowly opens up these little seeps so that it's easier for water to go in that direction. And as a result, any water that is coming down is now got an easier way going towards the spring outlet than it does other places. And you start to see water coming down that direction preferentially over time. So I would suspect that both of those would feed into the increase in, uh, in amount of water you harvested over time. Now I want to squeeze in one more thing. I just uh, I mentioned before I want to talk about the terraces a little bit. And it's like Sepulcher's terraces are a little bit different. When we think of a terrace, a lot of times we think of the stuff that we see in pictures from Asia where the terraces are so level that they will hold water uh, to be part of a rice production design. And Sepulcher's terraces have a little bit of a wobble in them to not – do that. He prefers to make it so that uh, his terraces might go up and down as much as a foot over a hundred foot span. And uh, part of it is, is that when you do a terrace, then of course there's all kinds of benefits to building a terrace. But what he's also trying to do is while well, he's trying to keep the water to, to have it run off less and run towards the back of the terrace more. Right. He's also trying to make it so that there are some spots on his terraces that are a little bit wetter than other spots. So if it wobbles down a foot, 
then where it has wobbled down a foot, that spot will be wetter. And then where it is a high point in the terrace that might be a foot higher than that stuff a 100 feet away might be a little bit drier. So he's adding a flavor of diversity, but on top of that, it also kind of goes well with what you've described as like there's a hidden pipe, and it's going to collect that, and it's going to go ever so slightly downhill itself in order to be able to harvest the underground water. Right. So in a way, he's kind of doing that on the surface as well. So I just wanted to point out that a Sepulter Terrace has a little bit of wobble to it. Yeah, he's okay. intentionally creating, instead of a monoculture, he's creating basically microclimates. And then the entire thing is slightly back cut so that the, when the water does run off, it does, ha- it has a tendency to go towards the back of the terrace instead of going over the front of the terrace and then running down the steep part downhill. It's a tendency to work its way back and he's got it set up where it can infiltrate better there, right? So, that's a, it becomes an infiltration point, both for the water coming off of that terrace and for the wa- any water flowing downhill from the steepness above the terrace. They kind of meet there at the back toe, the back end of that, uh, terrace. And then they can, uh, infiltrate in there, right? And so you probably have, uh, in a landscape like this, you might have multiple terraces going up the hillside, each of which is creating some productive space, but also allowing for excess water to infiltrate. And then down at the lowest terrace is where you would put your takeout spring pipe in so that it is trying to intercept the water that is being infiltrated both by the terrace just above it and then also the uphill terraces. And then all that water comes in and gets collected there at that uh, at that lowest terrace. Now, the permaculture technology jamboree. We have a very strict format in that we don't allow classroom time. Everything is a build. Everything creates an artifact. And so I think that the people that come to the permaculture technology jamboree, they're, they are, they are doers. They are people that want to do. They are people that want to build and create things. Now, I know that for you, and for Uncle Mud and several other of the people that come as instructors, it's that is maddening. It's like we've got so much to talk about first, <laughs> and, and we got to design this, and we got to make decisions, and then we got to do things. But it's like first we got to you know, talk, 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 and it's kind of like we don't allow that. We do allow it in the evenings, and so there's a lot of evening presentations that feature the the. uh uh, more of the designs and the uh, uh, theories and things of that nature, safety demonstrations, stuff like that. But uh, the whole permaculture technology jamboree, including the very first day, is due. So what we have here is hills. I mean, we're in the Rocky Mountains. We have we actually have mountains. <laughs> we, we, like I have the volcano. We, we call it the volcano. It's not really a volcano, but, but it, but I beg, I basically own the volcano. It's mine. <laughs> and that's a pretty steep chunk of mountain right there. And then we've got some more mountainy bits up on the lab. And, uh, but the ones up on the lab, 
Because here at base camp, it's like base camp is a giant rock, a 20-acre rock. Whereas up at the lab, which is a mile away, a lot of alluvial soils. But up on the hillside, where you would think it would be just giant rock sticking out, it's it's actually got a fair bit of of uh, gravelly stuff on it. So this yes. this mountain has been eroding. This giant rock of the Rocky Mountains has been eroding for millennia, and it has gravelly bits that it has deposited on its sides as it has gone from being rather upright to less upright. And so you led an expedition out to this stuff, to this this mountainy bit. And it's kind of like, well, everything smells about right. There's a giant mountain made out of rock with, you know, Mountain et falling down the mountain and piling up in a rather gravelly, permeable fashion. So, well, all we got to do is what? So, yeah, the first thing we did, of course, is, you know, the, the lab had a couple of different possibilities. So, you know, I had, while we were doing the PDC, um, I sent Chase over with, uh, Fred and a couple of the boots and they explored and came up with a number of possibilities. And so the fir- very first thing we did on the first morning was to go out and just do a field assessment because that's, you know, to, to sort of observe and figure out what's, what are our likely places? You know, what, what are the thumbs up and thumbs down on just first surface indications we can see? And the place that we chose was by far the best looking of them. Um, cause yes, you had a number of very steep hills coming down, uh, into, uh, this area where it was about the most rich vegetation in terms of very, very lush grasses that we could find on the lab anywhere. And as we got out of the vehicles and started to walk towards the, the base of these hills where these hills were kind of converging together, um, I was encouraging everybody to pay attention to what the the feel of the ground underneath them was telling them. And as we continued to walk, the ground gets a little more springy. It gets a little, oh, you're like, oh, yeah, this is getting, there's more organic matter under our feet now, and there's more moisture. So you could reach down and feel the surface. And you're like, ah, okay. We're getting to a place where water is accumulating. And so we came to the base of this hill. Uh, you could look and see that there was the potential if you had that subsurface impermeable layer doing what you wanted it to do, then boy, there was, there was a lot of water here. Okay. So now the question is, is there an impermeable layer we can get to in which that is piling up and we can harvest it, right? Otherwise, it's just the fact that there's a lot of water running off downhill on the surface and that there's a lot of organic matter that's accumulated here and it's all just being held, you know, in the in the humic layer up top. 
And if that's all that it is, then we're going to have a hard time harvesting it with the spring terrace. If it is such that we can dig in here and find that impermeable layer where the, there's a, you know, water wanting to seep, then we're in business. So we go and we look at that. We all agree that, um, boy, there's a lot of indicators that there's a lot of water, you know, somehow or another in the soil right underneath our feet. It's the richest stuff we can find on the lab anywhere. And we're looking uphill and going, well, maybe part of that water is coming down this hillside on an impermeable subsurface. So let's go get the excavator and um, dig what we call a slice. Let's come in and um, and dig down about 20 feet um, or so, 16 to 20 feet. Like a 16 feet. It'll be 16 feet. Yeah, for, for the, the excavator we had, 16 feet was as far as we could get. Um, so we went in and we dug down a slice, you know, again, laterally across the hillside, almost like on a contour line, mm-hmm. so that we could look down and see what was going on there. Um, so we did that and um, we dug that all out and um, and and got to looking at it. Now, one of the challenges here, of course, is that um, for safety purposes, you shouldn't put anybody down into a hole like that. <laughs> unless that it. I've never done it. Uh, I don't. Was there anybody in your team that was tempted to go down there? Uh, I think everybody there had pretty good sense. I've seen it done before. <laughs> Ooh. I have, yeah. I have seen it done before. And, um, of course, the, basically safety regulations say you get much more than about four feet into a hole like that. Yeah. You know, and no, don't. now you have to have basically anti-collapse Safety barricades, these, these structures that go down to hold the, the sides of the, the dig up before you can put anybody down in it physically. And I'm saying this just in case anybody's listening going, Oh, I'm yeah. going to use this as a, you know, I'm going to go off and try this myself. You, you have to realize that if you get somebody down in a hole like that and it collapses, it can kill them instantly. Yeah. It's not like we'll dig them out. Oh, no. No. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land but don't know where to start? Do you have a world-changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul-versation today at permies.com slash consult. permies.com slash consult. And the function is somebody's thinking like, well, how wet is that dirt? And and you're standing right. there thinking, if only we had something that could reach down to the bottom of that hole and bring up a sample for right. us to fondle. And it's like, hello, excavator right here. <laughs> exactly. So, That's what see. you do. Uh, I will note, by the way, that one of the little other little things is, you know, uh, we had Chase running the op, uh, running the excavator, 
And obviously the first thing we did when we started to dig was we took the um, organic matter humic layers and separated them out from the subsoil. So we put a separate pile, right? And I was like, I pointed over and said, Chase, please put the, put the, the, the topsoil over here, right? So you put the topsoil in a separate place. That means if we, when we, we fill the hole back up, we can top dress it back with the, with the topsoil. We don't want to mix that topsoil in with the subsoil and, and, and lose that very valuable, um, uh, resource. And anytime you're doing any kind of earthworks like this, that's one of the first things you do is you save your topsoil so that it can be redressed on top when you put things back. Right? So we save our topsoil and then we start digging and we call it a slice because we do it in slices. We use the excavator to take off a slice, put it into um, a pile, and then we pause for a second and we go and we look at what did we just get in that slice, right? So we're, we're asking the, the excavator operator to bring us up little slices of about a foot at a time so that we can take that, put it you know, on top of the, the pile that's coming out and go see what we're getting um, and, and see how wet it is and see what kind of material it is and so on and so forth. Um, so that's what we're doing instead of um, having somebody try to go down in the pit. That's the safe way of doing it, right? Yeah, don't have um, anybody ever go down in the pit. Never, 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 never. Right. Nobody ever goes down in the pit. And um, so, you know, um, we, um, if, if you need to go, um, let's say you're work, you need to work in an area where you need to go like six feet, then the only safe way to have somebody get into that is to literally dig back the sides so that it is no longer a trench. It is now an open hole that is wide enough that they can work in the center without the possibility of anything collapsing on them. You never put them into a trench where it can collapse on them. And then even with that, you don't go more than about six feet. Um, so, you know, that's that's just a hard rule because, yeah, you can kill somebody that way. And so be very careful. The other thing, of course, is um, you don't let people walk right up to the edge of the hole because <laughs> that can collapse as well. So the other rule of thumb for safety is, you nobody goes closer than three feet from the edge of the slice. Right, and and I gotta I want to amend that ever so slightly. Uh, if you're at the like, if there's a slice in the ground, there's two long edges and two short edges. Yes. And if you're standing a foot away from a short edge on or on next to the short edge, you're okay. But on the long edge. Definitely a good two and a half feet or more, and you kind of lean in and look inside without getting right. Because otherwise, if you stand on the edge, doop, 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 it, it it sloughs into the hole. Right. And so, damn it, Beavis, you just ruined our sample. Yep. <laughs> and now you're at the bottom of a hole, and we have no way of getting you out. Well, we'll come up with something, but. Right. And, and then if we don't get you out quick, the whole thing could cave in on you and you die. And then you really muck up our stuff. That's right. Make so for a sad day. Jeez, Beavis. <laughs> yes. So one of the things I would point out is, is so if we were doing this 
every time we would bring people on site, there would be a safety briefing before they were allowed to approach the dig. <laughs> the other, of course, was keeping out of excavator reach while the excavator is operating. Uh, that's, that is, because the excavator driver doesn't always see you. Right. It's the way that the engine sits inside of it and stuff. Correct. So it's like, so uh. Our rule of thumb is nobody is allowed to go inside of the operating radius of the excavator until the excavator driver has the back of the bucket sitting on the ground. Yeah, that's a good rule. That's and then, so that, that's because we tell the excavator driver, you are, once you put that down, you are not allowed to pick it back up until you get the thumbs up from the site safety coordinator. And the site safety coordinator is the one who's watching where everybody is so that when the operator's like, I'm ready to go, he looks at the site safety coordinator and the site safety coordinator makes certain he knows where everybody is. And then gives the thumbs up and then the, then the excavator operator can pick the, the bucket back up and go back to work. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to point out a few very important safety rules here because this is one of those little adventures where if you don't follow the safety rules, you can get somebody hurt or killed. Now I want to expand on the day one search for where we're going to put a spring terrace. What's our best place to put? A spring terrace. Yes. Now, um, <clears throat> one of the things I think, and, and now granted, I have the gift of hindsight because I know how all this ended up, and I I want to uh, now embrace the hindsight and and then expand on it, etc. I want to say, I think I would choose to try to pick something that's like because uh, in this case. We're looking at a plot of mountainside that's probably holding 50 acres of watershed. Yes. And I'm thinking the further up I go on this mountain, the, the thinner that the gravel is until I get down to rock, solid bedrock. Yep. And so the closer I am to the valley where the alluvial soil is, the thicker that's going to be. And so what I want to do is probably go, and I'm going to make up a number. I'm going to, I want to go 80 to a hundred feet up this mountainside. And then I'm going to try to make a fairly big terrace. And I, and by big, I mean like maybe this terrace, if I were to really build it out, it might be 80 to 100 feet wide, but I'm going to, rather than making it be hundreds of feet long, I might make it just 80 to 100 feet wide. So it's it's going to be like 80 by 80 when the terrace is built. Yep. After After I've built the terrace, if I did not discover uh, bedrock, or a permeable layer of some type. Then I'm going to go to the back of the terrace, closest to the hill, furthest from the valley, and start doing my 16-foot deep hole there. Now, we're driving our excavator, which is a 14-ton excavator, 
and uh it has a it it digs a 16 foot deep hole in about 20 minutes and um if uh uh if we were to get a 32 ton excavator up there so much larger excavator then it would dig a 24 foot deep hole in about 20 minutes so you know, the bigger the excavator, the faster this could go. But it also depends on, do you feel lucky, punk? You know? Yeah. So um, I will point out for people, by the way, that um, if you have a tractor with a PTO, then um, there are auger setups you can get in which if you want to do a quick initial test, you can actually auger out uh, down and uh, w- do the same thing we're talking about here, which is you can't see it, which is it's nice to be able to see it because you can't see down the hole. But what you can do is you can look at the materials coming out and it tells you a lot very quickly about like, you're like, oh, I wonder how deep the gravelly bits are here and how deep is, you know, the impermeable layer here. And so if you have uh, one of these augers on a PTO, you can just very quickly pop in, you know, uh, a, a, a hole and explore, uh, which is uh, a little bit less disruptive than having to, you know, bring in the full excavator. And so I, I think that doing slices with excavator is, you know, in certain places is the way to go. But if you have an auger, you can supplement sampling other, you know, in between, then that can also be very helpful. I think, my, I, our auger goes a little deeper than most. It goes four feet. Most augers are category one hitch augers and the most they can do is three feet. I think ours is category two. So it's a little bit bigger. We can, we can dig a hole four feet of depth pretty quickly. Um, there are people who, you know, you can get an extension. So you could dig the, let the auger go down and you kind of lift it up and down and it kind of clears the hole. And then you could drop it all the way down to the bottom, disconnect it, and then stick in an extension and then dig down a little bit deeper. But that gets to be very slow going, and uh, it's generally not worth this incredible amount of effort that you're going to go to to dig a hole this way. You don't even get all that deep. Are you familiar with any uh, tractor-mounted augers? I, I, my... My understanding is that some of those um, skid steers yes. can can do a much deeper auger. The, the ones I have worked with have been on skid steers, um, and uh, we were able to get like 12 feet easily. Wow, that is is an amazing test. Yeah. So, so I'm wanting to do more research on that because it's, it's like that. One of the one of the things that um, in, in doing some of these bits and different pieces of thinking about how to work with subsurface topography like this is being able to get enough samples to begin to be able to understand the subsurface geography, right? Because oh, yeah. if you can understand subsurface geography, then you can begin to understand the subsurface water dynamics and it makes things like spring terraces and other kinds of, you know, of, of earthworks um, wow, it's, it's very good information to have. And so, um, one of the things on my list is to research more how to be able to take, 
Um, I know that, that there are different tools for being able to do core samples where you literally can pull out a 20-foot core, for example, and instead of like an auger, which sort of like churns it up as it pulls it, that you basically have a um, – you have this device that, that – does a core sample and pulls it out as a consistent core sample. So you can actually characterize the, um, the cross section. And I, I've been meaning to go do some research into those and see what that would look like because that would be really helpful. So <clears throat> I have described what I think would be a good plan in case we do this again by embracing what did happen. Yes. And uh maybe now is a good time to talk about how you deviated from what I just described and what were the results. Right. Well, we had, you know, our first day was, was you know, basically finding the site, assessing the site, getting our first um, test slice dug um, and, um, and, and realizing that we didn't have um, – uh, it, it was there was some some moisture, but the question was if we left it overnight, would we um, what would happen? Would we see that it just dr- what little moisture was there dried up completely, or was there enough moisture that it, we would be wicking out additional moisture um, into the air and keep it a little bit moist? And um, so we when left you it overnight. To see- what you wanted to see at the bottom yeah. was a mud puddle. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that would be ideal, would be a mud puddle. Um, it, it, next would be, if we didn't see a mud puddle, we would see that there was maybe water beating on the surface of a strata that we had exposed, right? Like we had opened up an area of low hydrological pressure, in other words, a way for the water to get out, that now that we had done that, that we were getting little beady bits of water showing up on the surface of a, of like some strata we could, you know, down there, right? So, um, we came back and looked at it and, um, we did not have that there. Now our challenge came in, we had four days for this and the excavator decided to have a little hydraulic fit. Um, so we were out of the digging game for basically a day of our four because of that. Um, and, uh, because we basically had to have the excavator repaired and the hydraulic fluid replaced and all of that. So it took one of our four days, um, that we were originally intending on, you know, being able to work on the project. And, um, so we were like, ah, okay, well, we have a day in which we can't dig with the excavator. What do we do? So, um, we were like, well, let's use a little hand auger and, uh, let's just have some fun and go get, um, folks, get Jim to come over and lead a little dowsing experiment, right? And, uh, see what they can find. And, um, they, uh, the, the dowsers all went across this area independently. And what was interesting was independently all uh, three of them hit exactly the same spot. And we were like, oh, that's interesting. So we flagged that. We brought the hand auger in, and um, we went down about four feet, and we got a little excited because um, we had a um, we had a layer 
come up that was like wet. Um, as in like you could pick up the, 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 the clay sort of layer and water came running out of it and dripping down your hand. We're like, Oh, this is, this is good. Right. So, um, what we ended up doing was the following day, um, we finally got the excavator back online that afternoon and we were able to begin and dig a test pit there. And, um, what we, what we ended up figuring out just kind of, you know, by the time we got done with t- two days of adventuring and figuring all this stuff out was, that there was one very narrow little vein that had um, some moisture in it, but and we had hit it with the dowsing, which was really interesting. We had hit that one little spot, um, but that um, when we exposed it, that it was not expressing. It was it was um, it kind of dried up after um, 24 hours of being open to the air, so. At that point in time, we were running out of time and, um, we were kind of like, okay, well, we're not going to be able to, because we've lost a day, we're not going to be able to, um, to, uh, you know, to do it. And we didn't want to just throw it, throw a lot of resources into a hole where we didn't think we had a really great chance of it working. So we ended up not, you know, putting the pipe and everything else in. We ended up closing it back up. Okay. <clears throat> how, for this spot, how far up the mountainside were you? We were at the foot. We were okay. actually down on the level. And part of the reason that, you know, we did that is we went up and we did some test stuff up the hill a little bit and it became obvious that, um, there, there was no shallow, water up the hill in the first 30, 40 feet up the, you know, of elevation rise and that the water was somehow coming and collecting there at the bottom. Right. (laughs) So we're like, well, since we've got four days to play with this, this seems to be, let's start here and dig our test slices and see what we can come up with. Um, Because maybe what we're seeing is that, you know, there's an impermeable layer here, shallow enough we can get at it and it uh you know the water coming down from these hills is like piling up on it a little bit some way or the other and the other interesting thing we didn't take down any trees to dig our test slices and we could do it very quickly right and it was so we're not having to fell trees or anything else whereas the 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 hillside up the hill is it's kind of steep so it, it would be much slower and more careful excavator work and you'd have to possibly take trees out to get the excavator where you wanted to go. So yes. we're like, okay, let's let's explore down here where we don't have to take out trees, and we're on pretty level ground, so we're not having to. We can work quickly and efficiently with the excavator and see if this happens to work. And um, so that's where we ended up working um, to do like what you're suggesting, Paul. We have to go up, and it gets. Yep. Steep enough that you've got to get an experienced excavator operator in there and be careful because 
you don't want to run excavators sideways across oh. steep slopes. Yeah. Is it is my internet going out or is it yours? Uh, I think we lost you there for just a half second. Okay. Uh, a couple of quick things. Um, I've driven the excavator up that mountainside. And, and of course, the way that you do it is you go straight up. And as you're going, there's a couple of different ways to do it. One is, is that you extend your bucket out ahead of you so that your bucket is extended ahead as much as possible and riding low to the ground. So your bucket is giving you some ballast. Yep. Uh, the other way is to have your bucket trailing you <clears throat> and have it curved in so that if anything starts to go comically, then your, your, your bucket digs in and thus kind of keeps you from tilting any further. Right. So, but, but, uh, you know, not for the faint of heart. Um, I'm not going to say I am a highly experienced excavator operator, but I have done with an excavator some interesting stuff on steep country. And, um, and, and I, I gotta say this is not for everybody. This is, this will make people nervous. I got stories to tell, but yeah, it can be done. Yeah. It can definitely be done. Like I said, just with the limited time frame we had and the fact that some of the places we were looking would have required possibly moving some trees, small trees to get up it. We were like, okay, let's not get into that in a four day, you know, PTJ build. And you gotta, you, you gotta do the work. You gotta dig those holes. Yes. And that's part of it. And, um, and it's like, okay, I dug a hole here and here's what I found. Now I'm gonna, and it's like, okay, what I learned is not here. Right. And, and it's like, and, and I fell for it too when I very first arrived on the property. It's like, because you're right, those, the types of grasses growing there are indicative of a lot of water. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, uh, but when I dug down, I found a lot of silt. I was not finding clay or any other impermeable layer. I found a lot of silt. And so, um, but, and silt will hold water, but not as much as what I'm looking for. So anyway. Yeah. And the, the lab, is, the lab's geology is fascinating. You can dig a hole and then go 150 feet sideways and dig another hole, and you're like, this is completely different. Yeah. Okay, now, the Pacific Northwest is shaped by Lake Missoula. Right. So during the Ice Age, there was a giant dam that made up Lake Missoula. And... um and then the dam left. So suddenly all of this water shapes the Pacific Northwest. It, it dumps all this material in one big adventuresome splort. And, uh, and so there's all of these places all over the Pacific Northwest that are defined by this splort, this giant, giant, giant lake suddenly emptying out. And so near Missoula, there's eddies and stuff. There's, 
there's all kinds of things that went down a little bit differently. So we have this amazing spot that has, so we've got spots with clay, spots with silt, spots with sand, and we've got like four different kinds of sand. We've got beach sand and sharp sand. And it's like, uh, so what an exciting adventure. Now, getting back. Different kinds of clays as well. Very different kinds of clays. Yes, yes, which is in the PTJ movie because we have a, a clay expert at the event and she does a breakdown of there and so then they we fire up the rocket kiln with the different kinds of clays and we'll talk about that a little bit later <laughs> yep. okay spring terrace here is here is where i'm thinking is this like okay i'm going to scooch the excavator up to get to about a hundred feet up that mountainside now it's kind of steep but it's not too steep for what I'm describing. Fair? Yeah, I think you could get it up there if you were very careful. Like I said, you, given where we were, if you were using the same place, you'd probably have to take out a number of smaller trees to get up there. But yes. like saplings. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's just part of the game. Yeah. Then I'm going to get up there, and then I'm going to very carefully and delicately start to carve a small platform of a terrace, just enough to be able to park my excavator in a level fashion. Yep. And I'm going to need to do that slowly and carefully. Yes. Then I'm going to move my excavator into that, and now I'm going to start to dig a much bigger terrace. And now I can move my excavator around on this bigger terrace, and now I'm going to make an even bigger terrace. But by being a hundred feet up that mountainside, I'll have caused a certain flavor of destruction that you weren't comfortable yet, uh, with. You would have, you were working on like, let me try the less destructive stuff first. Yes. And, and then comedy, comedy, comedy. And then there wasn't time to go to this next stage that I'm describing now. Right. And, and then, and it's possible that considering all the people we have here to drive, it would probably have to be me personally that does this digging um, because of the, the risks involved in getting the excavator up there. Plus, I suspect that during this event, like if if we went for day five or six or whatever, during this event for all the people that were here, I'm going to speculate that of all the excavator operators on hand, I am unfortunately the best. And it's like, and that's not a high bar there. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's more like saying all these other people have far less experience than I do. Plus, I own the land, I own the excavator. If anything goes sideways, it's all on me. <laughs> and yeah. so, of course, the uh, other thing was we were still trying to baby the excavator a little bit because it had just had its, like I said, had its hydrological, you know, a hydraulic fit. And yeah. um, so we were like, okay, <laughs> just baby it along, make certain it's, you know, we can, we don't, that it, it, it's, it's still going. Right. This podcast is continued in part two. Have you ever wondered whether a particular book was really good or just so-so, and if you could trust the reviews online? When it comes to books related to permaculture, Permies has a large list of reviews for over 100 books. 
Perhaps you're considering a book for yourself or a friend, or you're just curious about what's out there. Stop by permies.com forward slash book and take a look at the book review grid and read some honest reviews, and hopefully you'll find the next book to add to your collection.